Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. It's the podcast where you control the conversation here on the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I write film reviews for IGN, and uh, when people write in, they call me Rockmeister McCool. <laughs> and uh, interesting fact about Rockmeister McCool, every single spelling is the correct one. That's uh, yeah. it's really beautiful, actually, when you think about it. Yeah, like yeah. It is it's egalitarian is a, of him. It is a, it is a free and open name, and you can use it as frequently or as infrequently as you like. Um, anyway, uh, here at the Critically Acclaimed <laughs> Network, Whitney and I host a lot of podcasts, but those podcasts are about you know stuff. We're about we review movies, we talk about TV shows that we love, talk about TV shows that we're just sort of interested in, whether or not they're any good. We wanted a podcast for you to tell us. What to talk about. You get to ask us questions, ask recommendations, share your own uh, uh, lists of things that we can comment on. Uh, anything at all. The floor is yours. You write us in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And uh, we read as many as we can on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whitney, without further ado. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, one more. Ado. Let's get started. Oh, God. You got that one from, like, Milton Berle or something. I've been saying you? that for as long as I can remember. <laughs> and you watched you got, you got watched a Laugh-In rerun I, when you were a boy. And I probably heard it from somewhere, but I honestly... Yeah. it was. I've been saying that since elementary school. I cannot remember where I got that from. Uh, the one I got... Uh, it cracked me up when it turned up in an episode of The, the Simpsons, but mm-hmm. it was, if I could say a few words, I'd be a better public speaker. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Who said that in the Simpsons? Homer, Homer said Homer that. Said he that, said, that, like, yeah. I could say a few words. I'd be a better public speaker. And then there was like a pause of, of the people he was addressing, and only Bart started laughing. Like, everybody <laughs> else was dead silent. Oh, is it when he was roasting like Montgomery Burns? Was that it? Uh, no, it was, it was something, something else. else but, uh, Still a funny joke, damn it. Yeah. Anyway, here's a letter. <laughs> here's a letter from Adam. Hello, Adam. Hi, Adam. Uh, hello, William and Whitney. I hope all, all I hope all is well and can be can be given the current situation. I recently started watching Paul Feig's cocktail live streams on Instagram. Oh, I'm not familiar with these. Uh, all the celebrities are you know cooped up, so they're doing what they can to entertain us. Yeah. Uh, Steve Martin put out a video of him playing the banjo. I like that out, one. I out saw of the that woods. One. Yeah. Um, one of the late night talk show hosts said that was kind of unusual. It's the one time hearing banjo music out in the woods was relaxing. <laughs> not my joke. Um, uh, Weird Al played a classical gas on the accordion out on his balcony, and of course he has a nice home like out in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah, so there's like this great view out on his balcony. I liked uh, Patton Oswalt did one where he did stand up like on his lawn, just yelling <laughs> at his neighbors. <laughs> that one's funny. You should watch that one if you can. It's like sixty seconds long. Oh, it's a cute funny. little bit. I think and, it's his daughter who, who's like his heckler. And then he's like he, in the driveway. You suck. And then he said, "I want all the ham." No, no, it's not working. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, Paul Feig is like, I think he's mixing drinks. He's uh, like teaching a mixology. That seems on yeah. brand. He's very dead. Yeah, yeah. But we interviewed him once. He was really yeah, nice. He makes fancy drinks. That got me wondering if there were any drinks that you Ooh. saw in a movie that you thought you needed to try, could be alcoholic or non-alcoholic. Hmm. I remember when a couple of my friends saw The Big Lebowski and we all decided that white Russians were going to be the next cool thing. Of course, that never happened because I found white Russians horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I, usually, I usually write asking about stuff. That might not sound so critical, but I believe now, now more than ever, is a time to take a breather and have some fun here and there. Much love and best wishes from Tijuana, Mexico. Oh, thank you very much. Um, okay, so movie drinks. I'm not much of a drinker. I used to be a drinker. Mm-hmm. I would drink casually and 
and uh, sometimes to excess. Uh, mm. But what I found is that booze mostly makes me sleepy. Okay. Uh, I went through phases with booze. Sometimes it made me very sociable and fun. Uh, but usually it made me sleepy and or depressed. So I just don't drink very much mm. anymore. Occasionally I'll have a beer or a cocktail. But usually not much more than that. Mm. Um, I remember I went through a phase very explicitly inspired by Michael Mann's Miami Vice movie. Okay. Where I was a fiend for mojitos. And I will oh, say this. Oh, no. I, there's a there's a great bit. Just it's just Colin Farrell saying, "I'm a fiend for mojitos," <laughs> and it's just so ludicrous. But let me tell you something: mojitos are great. Mojitos are still one of my okay. favorite drinks. They're a delicious drink. <clears throat> they really are. I, I'm usually more a fan of drinks that taste like drinks. You know, you got a little little kick to them. Like, yeah, yeah, like like they make well, you go whether you like it or not. Mm. Uh, but a mojito, it's crushed mint. It's pretty good. Like I, I really liked those a lot, and that was mostly inspired by. God, I just, I, I don't know why I want a mojito now. I should. <laughs> he see, he made it look so cool, and yeah, mojitos are very nice. Uh, I never wanted to drink. Uh, I was just not interested, and also I hated it. Uh, any any yeah. booze I tasted all growing up, like throughout my youth, and also when yeah. I surpassed drinking age, it's just not interested. On my twenty first birthday, uh, my friends took me out to get drinks at Barney's Beanery. It's like they can't, <laughs> they can't even take me to a nice bar. They took me to Barney's Beanery, and uh, it's Where like did I go on my twenty first birthday. And, I think and I they, went, they there ordered... used to be a like a Westwood Brewing Company. I think I went there. Oh, okay. It's not there anymore. Yeah, I, I wish I'd gone to like a, a grown up bar, you know, yeah. where they serve real strong cocktails but they they kept handing me drinks they say here taste this you can't taste the alcohol of course that's all i can ever taste they give me something called a mudslide oh, which, yeah. which is like hot chocolate with tequila in it it's like horrible it's, it's just, not good I wouldn't no. recommend and, and um Did you try long was, island iced tea that one usually hides it pretty well no i didn't want to hide it i wanted to taste it but, to I, actually, hate, but okay. I hated it so i just wanted like a little drink like a little grown-up cocktail maybe in a martini you just want two fingers of something slam it down feel like a real man and then get the and then, fuck and out then of leave. Yeah. yeah i don't want to nurse something all night you want one with one of those like ice cubes that's like a big sphere yeah yeah those are cool or have you seen those new whiskey glasses where the ice is like at a 45 degree angle across the glass oh yeah so it's like fills in a triangle yeah it's, that's those, that's cool that's the hipster stuff ice now. technology has improved yeah. dramatically over the last 10 years or, or a, so a smoked whiskey where they serve you the whiskey glass underneath another glass dome that has smoke inside oh, like, like burnt wood chips inside to give it a smoky <laughs> flavor. There's that actually, sounds cool, there's actually a lot of really cool cocktail yeah, stuff. Now. And I know this because I'm finally uh, drinking for the okay. first time. Not drinking. I'm not a regular drinker, but I found cocktails you, I'm drawn to. What what cocktails do you like? Uh, I like gin, it turns out. Oh, okay. Uh, it, all of these sweet drinks that my friends tried to feed me at age 21... They should have tried bitter drinks. Yeah. They should have tried savory drinks. That was more my bag. That's so. how I was with coffee when I was young. Yeah, Everyone's yeah. like, here's coffee. We'll put a bunch of sugar in it for you so you'll enjoy it. Mm. And I didn't. And it wasn't until someone just made me like coffee straight, in straight, a French press. Good black coffee. Yeah, just yeah. decent, like not like bottom of the barrel, but like decent coffee, not super expensive. French press, nothing else. <laughs> nothing fancy, nothing added, just mm. coffee, coffee. And to this day, that's pretty much all mm. I drink. Okay. You know, just black coffee. I'm good. Yeah, you want yeah, it yeah. Uh, blonde roast or dark roast? Don't give a shit. It's all good. Um, as, as for drinks that were inspired by movies, I know um, Swingers uh, mm. sort of kicked off a lot. And it wasn't there wasn't a drink in Swingers, but there was a whole subculture that sort of sprung up thanks to movies like Swingers uh, and also uh, the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. Yeah. This, very, this sort of like retro 60s cool started to come up in, in certain corners. Around this time, Capitol Records started to release their Ultra Lounge series of CDs. 
Mm. And they dug up all their old Martin Denny and Les Baxter and Exotica and Jackie Gleason. All these wonderful old loungy (laughs) hits. You know, the thing square white adults listen to in the suburbs in like 1966. (laughs) The the lame music, the bad jazz, essentially. But, uh, But I fell in love with that stuff. I started buying the CDs. And in each one of the CD cases... There was a drink recipe. So I had in my mind, even before I started drinking, what a, quote, real drink was. Like an actual strong drink that some guy in a press suit would have after work. Uh, And those were always the drinks I wanted to try. So in a roundabout way, Swingers led me to the zombie. Oh, zombie's pretty good, yeah. Especially if it's mixed well and you have high-quality rum. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a zombie at a, a little... There's another hip thing about drinking culture right now: speakeasies. Oh yeah, it's like a little tiny bar hidden in the back of a restaurant, but it's oh, not hidden. You just need to go there. What I hate uh, is uh, there's a thing now where they'll have like uh, a facade of a business, but you yeah. can't actually have the business. There's like a barber shop <laughs> in Culver City, or I guess probably closed now. But there's a what barbershop in Culver City where like the barbershop is like the first like ten feet. Mm-hmm. But you have to know to go into the back. But they don't tell you. Pizza restaurant. And they don't fucking tell you. Someone asked. Someone was having like a birthday, and they were like, "Oh, we're at this bar in Culver City." But we all we could find was a barbershop, so we left. Yeah, (laughs) we didn't. didn't, No one told us that there was a fucking James Bond. You're not cool enough to be in the know, apparently. Uh, But yeah, these speakeasies. Some of them had yeah facades and hidden doors. Uh, We found one in San Diego called the False Idol. It's one of the best tiki bars I've ever encountered. It's a good name for it. And I got a gigantic uh, zombie, and it was limit one per customer because they were so potent <laughs> and i drank that thing and it's one of the few times in my life i was actually just flat drunk mm. i just remembered a drink that's famous mm. from a movie <laughs> that i always meant to order and i actually mm. never did for whatever reason whenever it was in a bar it never occurred to me mm-hmm. sweet vermouth rocks with a twist please that's my favorite drink sweet really vermouth. mine too it always reminds me of rome the way the sun hits the buildings and the no you don't remember groundhog day Oh, okay. It's, it's Andy McDowell's favorite It's been a long drink. time since I've seen yeah. Groundhog Day. Yeah. Um, and another thing, this is not from a movie, it's from a TV show, but uh, at my 30th birthday party, I did mix A Killer Shrew, which, uh, <laughs> now, if you're a Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan, you're going to be laughing like William is right now. Uh, they they were watching a film called The Killer Shrews and uh, it's really just, bad. They, they just sort of riffed on this idea. Of killer Shrew that sounds like a drink. Like give me a Killer Shrew well, barkeep. Because in the movie, uh, the movie is a bunch of people get stuck on an island with a bunch of giant killer shrews. Which, shrews, which by are, the way, are, are like the size of your mm. finger. But these ones are actually uh, golden retrievers wearing bath mats. They're just yeah. terrible looking. The idea is that if shrews were bigger, they'd be really dangerous. Mm. Which is a pretty thin premise to base a movie on <laughs> but the thing is is that everyone's like holed up in this house while killer shrews are are roaming the island mm-hmm. like 90 percent of the movie is just people getting drink getting drunk and being snarky mm-hmm. that's it <laughs> it's like a bad tennessee williams play yeah yeah uh so they the, what they did was they decided to because we're looking at so many people drink mm-hmm. make a drink called the Killer Shrew. And Whitney, what is in a Killer Shrew? A Killer Shrew, I had to look this up, but it, it's, um, there's no booze in it. It's just, it's like, <laughs> it's just candy. It's, it's, uh, chocolate ice cream and Mr. Pibb, uh, crunch berries, peanut M&Ms, Mrs. Butterworth's maple <laughs> syrup, circus peanuts. The circus peanuts is where they lose uh, me. Circus peanuts are terrible. Also marshmallow peeps. I've never uh, seen anyone eat a circus peanut uh, on anything other than a dare. Uh, sweet tarts with vanilla frosting and good and plenty. Now it's... <laughs> I remember Joel saying, is this going to be kind of sweet? Yeah. (laughs) 
Now, I, I, I actually made it. I actually acquired oh all, God. especially even the right brands. It was hard to find marshmallow peeps because my birthday's so in August, but I found them. Uh, found the circus peanuts. I got them at a gas station because circus peanuts, that's the only place you can get circus peanuts. Did I peanuts know anymore. you? Yeah, I don't think I, I don't did. think we had met. Not yet. A, no, shit. But yeah, I, went, I brought them to my 30th birthday party. Oh, I man. blended it up. It, for somehow, you mix all of those really sweet ingredients together and it tastes like metallic. <laughs> it has this weird kind of. Well, because Hollow, rusty, well, like a lot of them have extra chemicals. Like good and plenty. Good and plenty yeah. isn't just sugar. Good and is chemicals, and a yeah, lot of them yeah. have just all those preservatives are just mm. stacking up at that point. So yeah, I, I, I'm tasting it, and all I'm tasting at that point is like chemical preservatives, and it does taste like a battery. It's like the mm. most horrible thing. And of course, there's all this silt in the bottom, so you have to scoop up all of the if you want it, the full mm. experience. We uh, we interviewed uh, Joel Hodgson once. Mm. Uh, one of the best days of my life um <laughs> and uh i realized mm. uh that uh uh i had never like there was a question after we did the podcast that i forgot to ask that i always wanted to from mst3k mm. and uh so i asked him on twitter mm. uh thinking maybe he'd respond and he did and i said there's one question i forgot to ask what's a fintoozler because a fintoozler is like a nonsense word they use over and over again on the old Joel episodes of MST3K. Uh, and uh, Joel did respond, and he said, it's a drink. That's it. It's a drink. <laughs> it's not actually... There's no actual explanation for what's in the drink. Near as I can tell, there's no recipe for it. Like It's not actually... like You look it up online... There's no like recipe for a Fintuzler, but <laughs> apparently that, that's probably like one of his stock answers when he gets some of those weird questions probably. from fans. Uh, but apparently, one of the jokes was try the Fintuzler, you get to keep the glass. So, apparently, originally that one actually was oh, okay. a drink or some drink that they made up, or maybe yeah. it was a local thing that ever made it online. Anyway, we should we should move on, but that was a fun question. A fun I like question. that. Yeah. Uh, here's a letter from Paula Hello, Paula. Uh, hey guys, I hope all is well with you and that you're keep you're both keeping busy during and safe during this pandemic. Keeping quite uh, busy, actually. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I live just outside so. of New York City, so as you can imagine, everything around here has been locked down for a while now. Yeah. Thankfully, the worst thing I've had to deal with personally has been boredom. Mm. Uh, this morning, I was scrolling through YouTube and I came across the most delightful channel called Cinema Wins. Oh. The videos are scripted and set up exactly in the way as Cinema Sins videos, down to the counter and a bell, but instead of listing sins, they go through movies pointing out all of its wins. <laughs> That's <laughs> I've nice. Only, I've only watched a few videos. Uh, it's a good antidote, I suppose. Um, I've only watched a few of the videos, obviously, but I'm finding it a delightful counterbalance to the nitpicking negativity of Cinema Sins' approach to criticism. I'm thinking that might be interesting to watch videos from both channels about the same movie just to observe the contrast. Uh, I know you've already spent a long time talking about this kind of criticism, but I'm mm. wondering, do you think there's value in approaching a movie with that level of detail, assuming that people can seek out both positive and negative breakdowns of the same movie? Do you think there's a real-world benefit for the average moviegoer to dissecting movies in this way? Or is, does it just become an academic exercise after a while? Sincerely, Paul. Uh, that's actually and, an interesting question. First mm. off, uh, I've never seen Cinema Wins. Uh, mm. I like the premise in a vacuum. Uh, but without watching it, I can't say whether or not uh -huh. I, I like it or, or if it's any good. Um, on some level, um, Mike, my one concern is that only focusing on things that you don't like about something and mm. only focusing on things that you do like about something are just as narrowly focused. And, and However, hungry... this is this exists to balance another thing, so yeah, that I can't really complain about. 
you know, I, I would would often come to the defense of something like Cinema Sins because I always felt it was on some level like some sort of satire of nitpicking. But then it, it took me a little while to realize the kind of stuff they're nitpicking sounds exactly what, what like what they're doing. So yeah. maybe they're just nitpicking, and it's hard to tell. But, I think, the, um, and the fact that it's hard to tell for a lot of people is yeah, the problem. Is the problem? Yeah. Um, that kind of analysis, I think, is a fun intellectual exercise. Yeah. But I don't think it's necessarily useful criticism all the time. Mm. Um, I think it is important to go through the things you love and reevaluate them frequently. Because yeah. sometimes you you grow up and you change and you feel differently about something you love and you might not like it as much. Same with the things you hate. Uh, something you might really dislike is something you may not have been mature enough to appreciate at first. So I think it's really, really important to unstick the 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 canon in your head. Yeah. Uh, don't don't leave anything in there permanently. I will always love X film, The Empire Strikes Back, or yeah. whatever it is you got. Uh, I think it's important to occasionally not just watch the film to enjoy it, but really sort of think about it, analyze it, and mm. and question what's still speaking to you, if anything, yeah, about just, this film. Or if it's just nostalgia, or yeah. if it's just comfort, what's it doing for you now? Just whatever you do, don't question the city on the edge of forever in the same room as Scott Manson, Whitney Seibold. They'll have none of that. <laughs> Look, I... I we didn't attack you. We no, defended no, no, ourselves. no, no, no. It was, it was the it's, attitude it's, was like, you have criticism? <laughs> we have a podcast called All Our Yesterdays where we review every episode of Star Trek. And we just did The City on the Edge of Forever. Which is considered the Citizen Kane of Star Trek. Mm. Or as Whitney says, Citizen Kane is the City on the Edge of Forever of movies. Mm. Uh, and I had some criticisms. And <laughs> not they treated me with the utmost respect. And we had a really sprightly conversation about it. And I mm. enjoyed the episode very much. But the moment when I said I had criticisms, you could see their faces like, you what? <laughs> With what? Mm. Um, I will that, say- that said, yeah. uh, Scott even said this to your face. He's like, yeah. I appreciate that you're coming at me from a different angle. Because, yeah. you know, Died in the Wool Trekkies, again, we have that headcanon. Yeah. We have this idea that there's these certain, the certain ranking of certain episodes that are a little bit permanent. At least some do. of them are. Some of them, yeah. This is so definitely one of the worst. This is definitely one of the best. So, yeah, it's like, talk to me about Spock's brain. I, so <laughs> I've seen Spock's brain. Can we get that on a shirt? Talk to me about talk Spock's brain. Talk to me about Spock's brain. It's <laughs> a good shirt. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's always considered one of the worst. And yeah. in my brain, it's still one of the worst. But it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. Maybe I can reevaluate it. Maybe I look forward to seeing that episode. I've yeah. actually never watched it all the way through. But my point is, it was interesting to have a conversation challenging mm. the preconceived notion that that is not just one of the best yeah. Star Treks, but one of the best episodes of television ever. It led to an interesting conversation. Mm. The the thing you brought up at the end of this, uh, of the email, which I thought was really interesting, was the idea of... Is that kind of, I'm not going to use my own term here, or a term I've heard before, uh, close reading, mm. uh, useful for uh, the, the the average moviegoer, or might maybe the layperson who isn't typically interested in mm. deep, deep, deep analysis, deep yeah. analysis of art, and particularly film. Uh, the kind of people who say things like, uh, just turn off your brain, it's a movie. Mm. Um, mm. I think it is. Mm. However, um, on some level, when you do that, um, if you're not playful about it it can feel like homework and it can maybe drain the things you like mm -hmm. of some of their power you know to once you really start analyzing every single creative decision you start noticing all the nuts and bolts of the filmmaking it's might take you out of the immersive quality of a movie at least at first mm -hmm. i know some people when they go to film school 
just all they can see now is the technical stuff that they never knew before. Oh, oh, there's a word for that. I never knew there was a word for that before. No, now all I can no, think they, of every time. Yeah. Oh, no, they violated the axis of action. Wait, I should be watching the scene. Yeah, yeah but if but if they but now you know maybe why you're taken out of the scene and can think about the the axis of actions because they violated it. Uh, the axis of action, by the way, is uh, it's really simple. It's, uh, it's like, usually when you see like, like a, the invisible. It's kind of like an invisible proscenium within a screen. Kind of. So when you're watching a scene with two people in it, for example, it gets more complicated when you have more than two. So for the sake of argument, two people. There's usually one person on the left side of the screen, one person on the right side of the screen, and there'll be like a wide shot where you see them both. Mm-hmm. And then usually they'll cut to shot counter shot. Yeah, shot counter shot. So maybe like a close up of the person on the left and a close up of the person on the right. But they'll always be looking in the same direction. So mm. if someone's on the right looking at the person on the left, every time you cut to a different angle of them, they should always be looking to the left. Mm. Otherwise, it gets confusing and you start losing track of where people are in the scene and it's it's not that you can't figure it out, it's that your brain gets distracted by it. Mm. So it's something that's considered a bit of a rule. People have broken it, sometimes effectively, sometimes ineffectively. But that's something you learn about in film school. And now that you know that, you start looking at movies and you say like, oh, look at that. They're using the axis of action. Hmm. When you learn anything new, it becomes a little distracting at first, which is why sometimes college students, like, and I've included myself in this, can be a little insufferable. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I just <laughs> learned about this philosophy. Well, did you know that every magazine you read is blah, 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 blah? Yes. <laughs> it's, but it's the excitement have of learning. Heard, have you heard of this band called Led Zeppelin? Yeah. yeah. It's the excitement of learning. It's, mm. it, you know, for people who know th- the stuff you're talking about, it can be a little redundant, but it's cool that you know stuff. Mm. So the idea of teaching that stuff is really, really exciting. And I think one of the most exciting things you can do if you do love movies, even casually, is take a movie that you love and or preferably respect uh, and look at it shot by shot. Like, yeah, or at least yeah. scene by scene. And just like you watch a scene and you just pause it and you ask yourself, okay, what, did, what creative decisions went into this scene? What do I like about this scene? And how does the way that the scene was filmed create that effect? Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you looked at maybe the first scene of Tim Burton's Batman, mm-hmm. where it's actually just uh, two uh, uh, muggers in an alley and they steal some people's purses and you think it's going to be Batman, but it's not. Hmm. Well, that's really clever actually, because at first you think you're watching the origin of Batman and that way Tim Burton gives you the origin of Batman without taking the time to actually Hmm. make you sit through the origin of Batman, which even in 1989, everyone had pretty much gotten the gist out. (laughs) But then when they go up on a rooftop and they're speaking in hushed tones and they Hmm. talk about this mysterious bat in town, you start following along you start knowing where you are in the story you realize that batman is an urban legend and then you get to see batman in all of his glory that's a simplification i could go into more detail but once you start looking at every creative decision that goes into every moment and every movie like you start realizing how complicated it is to make a movie mm-hmm. um how easy it is to screw things up how easy it is uh, uh, to just fall back on kind of rote traditional filmmaking and how impressive it is when people do something really novel. Yeah. So I do recommend it. Um, there's a lot of commentary tracks where you can watch this sort of thing. There are various deep dives online besides mm-hmm. Cinema Sins and Cinema Wins. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, I think it's fun, but um, it's the sort of thing that most people might only have a limited amount of patience for, so pick your battles. Yeah, yeah. Um. There, I think there's value to um, the opposite as well. Hmm. Uh, trolling, I think, actually has a function. A oh, function. you. <clears throat> well, um, 
when, when you troll, essentially, the word trolling implies that you're being dishonest, that you're only mm. doing it to get a rise out of people. It implies um, that you're being a jerk about it. Yeah, deliberately so. Like, yeah. you're, that that's your goal, is to make people yeah. angry. And that's uh, just a spore online. Uh, but yeah. I feel like what sounds like trolling is actually a form of criticism in a lot of cases. Uh, it can when, be. When you are... Um, Presenting a contrary opinion, yeah. Especially if it's a if it's a well reasoned one, mm-hmm. then that's useful. I would argue that if, it stops being just, trolling if it's well reasoned. Well, yeah, but you know, if, if you go online and just say you know, Boba Fett sucks, you know, then you're just going to piss mm. people off. But uh, yeah, if, if somebody says like here here's my favorite of the Avengers movies, and I and I come back with I think these movies are kind of military propaganda in a lot of ways. Uh, that sounds like trolling, right? Because it's on Twitter and I only have 280 characters. Well, I mean, they they but, spoke to you, but... I suppose so. But uh, I, I feel like it being contrarian in that sort of way can also serve a vital critical function. Well, I think as long as the contrarianism is... Because what happens is we get if, these if, sort if, of mass cultural on, understanding. On, if it's based on authenticity, yeah, that's, that's the point. acceptable. And if you can explain yourself. Because that's what mm-hmm. film criticism is. Everyone mm-hmm. has an opinion about stuff. Yeah. A critic... Someone who is giving fair and reasonable criticism is someone who knows enough about the subject to have an informed opinion about it. And it's still an opinion, but an informed opinion is usually better. Uh, and can explain why they like or dislike something, which is especially important <laughs> if other people generally disagree. Mm-hmm. People tend to form group opinions about stuff. Mm-hmm. People generally like the Marvel movies. There are people who don't. The general assessment is they're all at least pretty good. Mm-hmm. Which is why maybe a film that is very divisive, like Batman v Superman, which has a lot of very earnest fans, mm-hmm. and a lot of people who genuinely think it sucks. And frankly, both of them have had reasonable arguments, and it boils down to a matter of taste. What the people who dislike Batman v Superman would call blunt and immature, mm-hmm. people uh, who like it would call it bold and uh, forthright. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, unique. Yeah. yeah, well, maybe not unique, but you know, like, like it's mm-hmm. it's it's in your face. It's it's like a Greek myth. It's like it's going just all out, and if <laughs> it's not subtle, so be it. Oh. Um, and that's a matter of taste. I can I can see that argument. I disagree with that. I think it's, it's done without class or nuance, but I see why you dig that. We can have that conversation. We can disagree mm-hmm. on the fundamentals. Um, but if there's like a general assessment that a movie is brilliant and you disagree and you want to speak publicly about that, it's probably best to have a reasoned argument. Mm-hmm. Like otherwise, if you're just saying, that sucks, and then you just run away from Twitter. Mm-hmm. That's probably trolling. <laughs> yeah. That's just not, that's not helping anyone. That's not having a conversation. That's not expanding our perspective on things. But if you say, I, I actually think that sucks. And let me explain why it's got, this is a problem and this doesn't make any sense. And this is thematically contradictory. And mm. uh, I find the action scenes confusingly edited compared to X, Y, and Z. It deals with this sort of ugly historical concept without really analyzing it. There's a ton of stuff you can talk about Mm. in a movie. And an interesting contrarian opinion is great. And sometimes those opinions change my mind. Yeah. yeah. If they're well-reasoned, I'll be like, shit, I never looked at it that way before. That that movie I didn't like is great. Or that movie I did like is intensely problematic. Mm. 
That's that's great that's, criticism. That's, that's good criticism. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so challenging the status quo can be really valuable, provided you have a reasoned argument. Yeah. 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 Um, don't be. Don't worry if people call you a troll just because you have a contrary opinion. Just don't be a troll. Yeah, d- don't don't do it just to be a dick. Mm. Do it to share a point of view and try to do it in a way that actually yeah, yeah. resonates. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, that was really interesting. That was, yeah. that was a great episode. Let's, here, do, let's here, do more. Here's a letter from Marshall. Yeah. Uh, hi, Marshall. Um, hello, Bibbs and Mr. McCool. I'll start with an aside. I was doing some genealogy the other day. I stumbled across the actual surname of McCool. <laughs> oh my I, god, that's awesome. I instantly thought of Whitney and looked further into it. Apparently the etymology can be a, either Irish or Scottish. Okay. It derives from the ancient Macgiola Comgale, meaning the son of the follower of St. Comgall, a saint oh. in the 7th century. Uh, it has been recorded in several forms, including McCool, C-O-L-E, McCool, and Mick I L H O Y L E McCoyle. Okay. And uh and the dialectical misspelling of McCold. Oh, okay. McCool is McCold. They're the same <laughs> cold is the, so Sounds... hot they're cool. So cool they're hot. Yeah. Um anyway, I thought that was kind of funny and fascinating, and there's a link about the, the history of the surname. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Uh, now onto my main reason for writing. Also ah. I also have a small podcast called The Journey Into Podcast. Oh, that's cool. That runs much le- less frequently than yours. And one <laughs> uh in one series for that podcast, my friend and I talk about random movies that strike our fancy. We are both Alfred Hitchcock fans, and we recently uh, reviewed a couple Hitchcock movies, one of which was Rope. Mm. Um, I enjoyed the movie more than my friend did. However, one of the things we both found fascinating came in watching the DVD extras with, where screenwriter Arthur Lawrence talks about the main characters in the film being gay yeah. and how the Catholic League of Decency required several modifications for this reason. I guess Hitchcock also had trouble getting lead male actors at the time like Cary Grant because they didn't want the association with homosexuality, which is weird because Cary Grant was bi. Uh, uh, oh, is that 100% confirmed? It's, it's, it's pretty much established, but... It's, it's one of the open secrets. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Like, he never came out and say... Yeah, there, there are extensive, like, photo shoots with him and his live-in best friend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, 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 the fellas he was with. Um, yeah. Ultimately, they cast Jimmy Stewart as a murderer's old Professor Rupert, who's also supposed to be gay, mm-hmm. because Stewart had a Boy Scout reputation. My friends and I did not get any gay vibes from the movie when we first watched it. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. No! Hold on, we should have a conversation with because that's right. interesting. Let's finish oh, the email. Well, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. On <laughs> a second viewing with that in mind, I could see the possible signs. The two of us figured we were just too straight or maybe too naive to put it together. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it was well known at the time. Perhaps in 1948, it was widely known that the film was based on a European play by Patrick Hamilton. Uh, where there were no bones about the characters being openly gay. Mm. I've had similar experiences with the original 1963 The Haunting. My question to you now is, uh, for other examples of gay subtext in films from the 40s, 50s, or 60s, I'd love to hear you discuss this. Oh, golly. Um, Oh, that's a great one. Um, um, Before I leave, I wanted to put in a vote for a Cancel Too Soon episode about the 2014 show Forever, starring Ian Griffith. We actually actually have that. We've been meaning to get to it. We'll get to it at some point in the future. Thank you for asking about that. Um, As for... Uh, gay coding in movies. Um, this takes us all the way back to the production code yet again. Uh, but also, it was a, a time when homosexuality was still openly illegal uh, in a lot of places. But um, in the 1930s, cinema was getting a little risque for some groups. And a lot of mm-hmm. uh, communities and sometimes whole states would ban movies mm-hmm. for things like... Showing not enough racism. 
Like there's a movie, uh, there, there's a movie uh, adaptation of Brewster's Millions, like before the Richard Pryor one, mm-hmm. where like a, a, it got banned in certain areas because there was a black character who wasn't oppressed enough. Like it's insanity. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, like, but there were movies about sex work. There was some nudity in movies. There was movies that were a little bit more violent than you might sometimes think. Uh, and as a result, movies were getting banned. And there were two problems with this as the industry saw it. One is they can't make money if it's banned. Right. And two is the government might actually step in and make laws about what can and cannot be in movies, which mm-hmm. would be a serious problem. And so the industry decided to um, basically create their own system of self-censorship. Uh, which is a very controversial and iffy idea to begin with. Mm. Uh, it was called the Hayes Code, a.k.a. the Production Code. And this was a very rigid set of guidelines about things that you can and cannot put in a movie. Sometimes movies stretched the edge of that. You might remember that Gone with the Wind has a cuss word in it, damn. <gasps> I know. They left Bite. all the racism in, but the word damn was God. like, ooh, can we do that? Bite your fucking tongue. They had to uh, They had to pay the Hays Code. They had to pay a fine <laughs> to be able to use the line. Um, but uh, there were rules about, like, no open-mouthed kissing, and kissing can't last more than three seconds, mm. which is why Alfred Hitchcock got around that in Notorious. He wanted to have a big, long make-out scene, mm. but they couldn't kiss for very long, so they had to walk around a room constantly kissing each other. It's very erotic, but... It's also working around a problem. And as you can imagine, given the time, homosexuality was right out. Like, you just couldn't yeah, depict it. Yeah. Um, however, they did it anyway. Mm. But they had to do it using various forms of coding. Mm. Uh, and I am not well, an expert in, in, in gay coding. There is a wonderful book and documentary called The Celluloid Closet, mm. which is very explicitly about the history of homosexuality as it yeah, is depicted. That, that documentary film is really terrific. Yeah, it's, yeah, I haven't seen it like on a streaming service in a while, but then again, I haven't looked in a while. It might mm. be readily available. It might not. It's definitely worth seeing. It's, I remember seeing it in the 90s. It was a big eye-opener. Yeah. Um, but uh, there were tons mm. of movies that dealt well, as directly as they could, but they had to use uh, yeah. various codes. The, there uh, like there, there were some film directors uh, and filmmakers and actors who were... It, again, it was the open secret sort of thing. Where mm-hmm. Everybody in Hollywood knew they were gay, but they couldn't just come out and say, as a gay man, because it was still illegal right. and there was still a lot of taboo about it. Uh, but all of that stuff made their way uh, into their movies. Uh, check out Bride of Frankenstein sometime. Oh, yeah. Um, Bride of Frankenstein is gay. Um, it, it's, <laughs> Look at the relationship between Dr. Pretorius and uh, everyone. Yeah, yeah Frankenstein and yeah, Dr. Pretorius who wants to yeah, pretty much have sex with everything. And, uh, <laughs> and there's even uh, sort of a joke about it in Gods and Monsters, which actually has a flashback, the film Gods and Monsters, which is a biopic of James Whale, the director of Bride of Frankenstein. Who was also gay. Who was also gay. Uh, and they have a flashback in that movie to the filming of Bride of Frankenstein, and the actors are joking openly about the set, about how gay this movie is. It, aren't, aren't we, look, we not only do we resurrect her, but we dressed her too. What a bunch of queens we are. Uh, it's, it's, if, you know, with a modern eye, these things are pretty obvious to us now. Mm-hmm. If you know to look for them, if you're young and you're not really thinking about subtext, yeah. you might miss some of it. But then mm. once someone says, hey, you ever see Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca? Yeah, the lady yeah. who worked who worked at uh, at Manderley, who was totally obsessed with mm. the 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 woman who died, mm. gay. 
Yeah. Really gay. Like, they're just, once you read that, the whole or, movie unlocks. Or Dracula's daughter. Yo, Dracula's uh, yeah, daughter of, is very queer. Yeah. Like, yeah, and it's, it's great. Super, super duper queer. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, a lot of those early horror films from, like, the 1930s, uh, mm-hmm. the, a they lot were of them dealing were with that kind of issue, yeah. Pre code or, like, uh, just as the code was coming Well, a lot of them are dealing with issues of people mm-hmm. who, are cult- who are social and cultural outsiders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of sympathy for those monsters. It's one of the reasons why a lot of those movies are so great mm. is that, yeah, they're monsters, but there a lot of them are sympathetic characters in a yeah. lot of ways. Um, but oh, you'll but notice yeah, in a lot of musicals, there's a, there's a lot of musicals in particular uh, where women are dressed as men. Mm. Uh, I just rewatched uh, Alexander's Ragtime Band. Yeah, uh, and I'm uh, pretty sure Ethel Merman's character is is coded okay uh, um, uh, uh, queer. Yeah, there, yeah. there was uh, um, the, the cellular closet goes into this much better than we ever could, just because it's so well researched. But the the cliche of the the, the sort of the sissy character, uh-huh. the kind of usually kind of skinny guy, a little bit kind of wimpy, has uh-huh. slicked down hair and has sort of effeminate mannerisms. At the time, that was just sort of an effeminate sissy guy. Sissy was a code word for gay, and mm-hmm. uh, they put these characters in as gay characters, and even gave them really gay things to do. Did you remember the scene in the beginning of the Maltese Falcon, yeah. where Peter Lorre comes in? Oh yeah, and he kind of minces over to the chair, and he's got the slicked hair, and he's carrying the cane. And as he's talking to Humphrey Bogart, he brings the cane up to his lips and starts like rubbing this little phallic object right on his mouth. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not subtle. He, he's he's filleting a cane on camera, and people don't <laughs> get it. <laughs> we so see yeah, this a lot in uh, I think we noticed this a couple of movies we reviewed in um, Only the Best as well where we saw a lot of uh, characters in movies about musical theater uh-huh. uh, 42nd Street has some gay side characters uh, mm-hmm. as well um, was it Top Hat that had like the gay uh, valet who also gets to like talk like there's an Italian cop who he gets mm-hmm. to like t- you know tell off Oh, you yes. remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah I think yeah, it was right. Top Hat. Mm. I think it was Top Hat. No, I think it was Swing Time. Was it Swing Time? It was either Top Hat or Swing Time. It was one of those. One of those. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, anyway, I highly recommend you read and or watch The Celluloid Closet. Both are yeah, highly the, recommended. The Celluloid Closet came, like, came out in the 90s, so mm-hmm. it's like only up to a certain point of film history, of course. But, it, but it's about like, film history, and it does yeah. go up to the 90s, but... Mm. If you're talking about film history, the 40s are still the 40s, so it's yeah, pretty it's just, it's pretty comprehensive yeah. as far as that goes. Um, I also highly recommend, if you're interested in queer cinema, you definitely have to read the work of Alonzo Duralde and uh, Dave White. Yeah, they have yeah, their yeah. own Linoleum Knife podcast, uh, which also has a Patreon with tons of cool stuff on it. Mm-hmm. Um, L- Linoleum Knife uh, has weekly movie reviews and stuff, and Alonzo Duralde has written a book. Uh, about uh, what's the name of his book? It's a gay movies everyone must see. One hundred and one must see movies for gay men. Yes, uh, that's a really really great tome. I own that. Um, he also wrote uh, the indispensable tome. Have yourself a movie little Christmas, mm. uh, which we tout every single Christmas because there actually aren't a lot of like proper books about Christmas movies, which mm. is a huge genre unto itself. Um, so anyway, I highly recommend uh, checking out his work. He's written extensively yeah. um, about everything mm. because he's a wonderful genius and a very good friend of ours. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's, but yeah, that's a great he, resource as well. He and his husband know a lot about queer cinema and yeah, yeah. definitely read, read their stuff. Um, yeah, golly, what are some other like really notorious examples? Uh, the um, Children's Hour is, is a, it's with um, uh, Shirley MacLaine and oh, Audrey Hepburn mm-hmm. and they're a, quote roommates 
and and there's there's sort of like a, a yeah, and there's like a, I I need to get away from you. I'm guilty. What are you guilty of? She's guilty of being a lesbian. It's yeah. like it's it's you know, there, what we, there, we can't of, we can't talk about it, but we can. Yeah, uh, Sal Minio and Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, very yeah. gay. Um, uh, yeah, I have actually written several articles about Sal Mineo because uh, Sal Mineo has an this interesting guy. He's an interesting guy. He's really kind of plain spoken. Plain spoken. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died tragically. He was murdered. I know. Uh, when his career was at this really low point, and yeah. and a lot of people look to something like uh, Rebel Without a Cause, and they look at the death of Plato, the character he played, mm-hmm. a very clearly queer coded character. Yeah. And, very much in love with James yeah, Dean's character. Very much character. in love with James Dean's character. Tragically can't admit it. Wants James Dean to kind of be this surrogate father figure, but really wants him to be his boyfriend. And and he, he ends up dying at the end of that movie. Spoilers. I mean, it's... The classic. I, I, I think people know it, but sorry, you can um, still see it though. That doesn't. It's not like that's the only point of the movie, right? It's, but um, it's not a, a twist. lot. A lot of people looked to Salminio and said, "Oh gosh, what a tragic life he led because he was murdered." Now, that was it. Was a tragedy that he was murdered. I, you know, talent was taken too soon. But he gave interviews where he was actually very frank and at peace with his his career and with his place in the world. Uh, he came out as bisexual at one point, and uh, a lot of people said. You know, in, the, in an interview, some, the interviewer asked him, so you came out as bisexual. Do you think that hurt you getting work? He's like, no, it helped. Everyone was bi at that point. Mm. Brando was bi. Paul Newman was yep. bi. Robert Redford was bi. You know, even the people who weren't bi said they were bi. Just so they could get <laughs> – so they could kind of seem hip and cool. And they're like, ooh, the scuttlebutt bi. It makes them so interesting. Uh, so he, like his sexuality, he didn't see as like some sort of like tragic thing he had to hide. He was very open about it. The thing he said that lost him work was that he was too Italian. His name was yeah. Sal, Sal Minio, Salvatore Minio. He, he's, you know, dark haired, very kind of dark complexion, looks like an Italian guy, behaves like an Italian guy. Yeah. That type of Italian boy that he looks like just wasn't hip and after a while. couldn't even get in West Side Story, for God's sake. <laughs> If, if he belonged to any movie, it was freaking West Side Story, right? right? <laughs> he was a great actor. I, mean, I was a huge yeah. fan. Um, oh, another one, uh, Ben-Hur. Oh, of course Ben-Hur. Uh, yeah. Ben-Hur was one where... <laughs> this is a great story. This is a great story. So what happens is the uh, relationship... So if you've seen Ben-Hur, it's mm. great. It's, uh, uh, Charlton Heston is uh, friends with a, a, a Roman general? Stephen Boyd, a general? Ma- Masala, yeah. He's, yeah, Masala is a general. And... Um, well, they have a huge falling out, and Charlton Heston becomes a slave, and he fights his way back through the chariot races, and it's all epic, and mm. it's actually not my favorite of that whole, like, era, but it's it's huge and big and it's, really it's, good. It's junky and... It's, yeah. it's the chariot race you know? is fucking phenomenal. Like, there's no denying that, if nothing else. <laughs> um, but uh, the story goes uh-huh. that in order to make this story of betrayal between two guy friends... Mm. You know, really seem that epic and that significant. Uh, Stephen Boyd was, I think, was told by the director, or at the least talked it out with him, uh, that they had had uh, a love affair. Mm. And so when but, Charlton Heston's, when, when Ben Hur, uh, like, moves on, he's offended and he's hurt mm. and he's speaking as a wounded lover. Apparently they didn't tell Charlton Heston that. Yeah. Because <laughs> Charlton Heston would not have been cool with that. Charlton <laughs> Heston was exceptionally conservative. Um, so that's a fun one. <laughs> trying to think, yeah, think, films that just don't deal with queer topics. Like, don't have queer... Like, I can't mention the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, well, right. Well, Spartacus was another but, one. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of gay subjects in Spartacus. Spartacus. Uh, no, it's text. Um, <laughs> well, yes. Uh, well, especially, with, like, especially with the scene they there, there was a famous deleted scene between uh, Laurence Olivier and Tony Curtis, where Tony Curtis is giving Laurence Olivier a bath. Yeah. And uh, 
the scene was shot and it was removed immediately because it was way too gay. Uh, and by too gay, we mean like they could, there was no mistaking it and yeah, they no, took it out so the people wouldn't complain. They, yeah, they took it out. Ridiculous so, and then they took it out. They put it in a vault and then they were able to find it, but the soundtrack was missing. So all the versions you hear, Tony Curtis, who was still alive, he came back in and recorded his dialogue. Lawrence Olivier was dead. So you listen to that. Why does he sound an awful lot like Anthony Hopkins? Well, it turns out <laughs> it's Anthony Hopkins' voice. Was um, it Lawrence Olivier? I thought it was... Um... I thought it was not Charles Charles Lawton now. Peter Ustinov? I thought it was Peter Ustinov in that. No, no, no. That's that's the Olivia character. In oh, movie. okay. I just don't remember. Um, yeah, and there's a bit where... Uh, no, I thought, I thought it was Charles Lawton. Okay, I could be wrong. No, I mean, Charles Lawton is great in that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's in it. It's just, yeah. It's his name, character Gracchus. Um, yeah. No, there's a yeah scene where Tony Curtis... Yeah, you're right. My bad. Gets into a bath with Laurence Olivier, and Laurence Olivier starts asking me these questions. Do you like snails? Do you like to eat snails? Uh, yeah, I like snails. Do you like oysters? No, I don't like oysters. I know what you're saying here. And then he gets out of it and he's like, do you think eating snails is moral and eating of oysters is immoral? I have no opinion, my lord. Yeah. And then he gets out of the tub and he's, he's naked and he puts on his robe and he actually says, this is the line of dialogue, my tastes include both snails and oysters. And this doesn't have anything to do with anything. Just no, so we're clear, it's kind of only in there yeah. for this one purpose. It's a great scene. It's a wonderful scene. And yeah, yeah it's like, if, if you're looking for a, a scene to do together with a classmate in, <laughs> in your college acting class, do that scene. That's a hell of a scene. Yeah. Yeah, Hopkins actually had studied uh, with Olivier. And, okay, so um, he, but he doesn't sound like Olivier. He's not doing Olivier's voice in that scene. He sounds like Anthony Hopkins. I know it's funny, though. I don't know. Like uh, I remember um, Anthony Hopkins was talking about um, – uh, Anthony Hopkins did uh, an appearance at my school, UCLA, when I was there. They did a screening of Remains of the Day. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, Anthony Hopkins was there for a Q&A. And it was awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had talked about method acting and how he actually got into it really briefly, mm-hmm. I think in the 1960s. And – it was Lawrence Olivier who talked him out of it mm. because he was trying to remember everything about his character. What did I have for lunch before I came in here? Uh-huh. And he was doing a play and he missed his cue. And he missed his cue because he was trying to stay in character. He was trying to get into character. Mm. And Olivier's like, where's Hopkins? <laughs> and Hopkins is like, oh, I was here. I was, oh, wait, where am I coming from? The wings! Just get on stage and say your lines! And he said he was pretty much done with the method acting after that. <laughs> <laughs> Once Lawrence Olivier yeah, yells at you and just says, say the line. Just say the line. It's not seeming so important. I, I studied acting in college, and there was a real, this is the one lesson I'll always take with me. They said, method acting only takes you so far. You need to be understood. It's like if, if you're up there really feeling the emotion and blubbering and crying and really yeah. reaching into experience you've had and feeling and being the character... It's not going to matter if the audience can't understand you. Yeah. Like, acting, there's always going to be some artifice to acting. Yeah, so, yeah that's true. We expect artifice to yeah. acting. What's interesting is how the artifice changes. Because mm-hmm. styles of acting change. Like, uh, before, yeah, around the time um, On the Waterfront came out, before, like, method acting started becoming more popular in cinema, mm-hmm. um, acting was a bit more stagey. That was accepted. That was just what acting was. That was what normal looked like. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say it's like, oh, acting was there was acting was bad back then. No, <laughs> acting was great. It was just stylized, mm-hmm. and the style shifts, and the style will continue to shift forever and ever. We got way off topic, uh, but yeah, cellular closet. Check it out. We should move on. Yeah, um, get this letter back up. Um, 
Here is a letter from Ro. Hello, Ro. Hi, Ro. Hello, Bib I Am and Rockmeister McCool. Thank you. Uh, since my last letter, you guys have gone back and listened to... I, I've gone back and listened to every episode of Cancelled Too Soon. Oh, wow. It took me almost was... exactly a year, I think. That oh, would do goodness, it. My goodness, quite, quite yeah. a marathon there. Uh, no idea if you've read my last since now you have a letters episode, too. Uh, have to catch up on those now, too. Okay. I listened during work, uh, so the giant backlog was uh, really appreciated to help me get me through my many shifts. I'm glad we can be there for people in, like cold warehouses or yeah. boring offices where you can just well, fill the time. That's one of the things I loved about doing Cancel Too Soon is because the, the episodes aren't topical. Yeah. So, like, if you're interested in what we're doing, you can you can yeah. go way the hell back and like listen we, to them all, and they're still... Like, I love it when I find, like, a web series that isn't, like, you know, The Daily Show and talk about something that happened today, yeah. and, like, oh, we're just looking at all of these, like, you know, interesting, I don't know, B-movies from the 70s or whatever. I'm like... Cool, and you're 50 episodes in? I got 50 episodes I can watch. It's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, There's yeah. nothing stopping me, and it won't seem out of place. I love it. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you liked it. Thank you. Uh, it was very fun seeing the show come into what it is today through every episode. Your original opening song was very different and quite erotic. Uh, <laughs> that really, was a miscommunication. Yeah, it really nailed the Skin of X theme, but uh, I really got to say, I love the current song. It's such a headbanger. Great, jo- great job on that one. Uh, uh, let's to, give credit where credit is due. Yeah, his name is Andy Hentz. Andy Hentz uh, is... Uh, an old friend of mine. We were co-workers at the New Art for 13 years together. Mm-hmm. He's a very talented musician, and I, I commissioned that for him. I said, yeah. give us something like the A-Team. And that's what he came up with. It was a, It's a good bit. I always wanted to shoot some footage of us, like, you know, with Jumping gun- away from an exploding Yeah, like, with sort of guns thing, in yeah. an alleyway going, huh, what, over there, what, ah, like that kind of, like, da, 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 yeah. like slamming our fists on desks, and um, mm. we have no money or no, cameras. We're not like doing that. that. We don't have like a film crew here. Yeah, that we would want to do that in a way that would at least if, be if the, fun. If like, the show really takes off and we can afford like a film studio and we can start you know, doing things on video, we can just then afford we'll a decent it, so yeah. camera. Like that, or, yeah, just a camera. Like we just have our laptops and our phones, and our phones aren't that great. That's why we don't do video. Yeah. By we, the way, we like just we don't, we don't have the tech. Like we'll it. occasionally shoot one, but it's mostly just for our patrons because it's just us in crappy video in front of my in bad lighting in front of my wall. Like that's it. Like we would love to do more video, but we just. Yeah. Don't have the technical we'll, we'll, we'll means. Get, we'll get a yeah, high uh, high definition camera. Get some people to do our hair. One of these makeup. days. One of these days. We don't need hair and makeup. We just need a decent camera. <laughs> okay. Um, and a decent laptop anyway. that can actually store all that. And, and what, how how many of your keys don't work now? On, uh, I, the, on my laptop, the letters <laughs> U, I, and O currently do not work. Vowels, that's useful. Yeah, all yeah. three of the five and a half vowels <laughs> do not work in my life. I have, a, I have an external keyboard. It's fine. It's fine. But yeah, yeah it also sucks. I'm so sorry. <laughs> anyway, I intended to write this letter sooner, but after catching up on Council Too Soon, I checked out your other shows because you two are such charming, fun individuals to listen to. Oh, well, that's push, oh, very nice. You, thank you. Um, I went back as far as a couple episodes of the B-Movies podcast. I'm not a movie guy at all. I watch maybe two to three a year. But I do have respect for the art form and uh, the art of criticism itself. You guys have really expanded my horizons with oh. recommendations and discussions. that have gotten me to think about qu- and question films in ways I n- had never considered before. It's awesome and I love... Learning fun facts and important discussions that should be considered when you two go off topic. Which, <laughs> which we, we do, do a lot. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> one thing that really surprised me going through the backlog is Whitney is the Pokemon guy. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That's one of my favorite yeah. things as well. Yeah, I am. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the Pokemon guy. Not Look, you're not even that into it. You just know it. I just know, Well, okay. My relationship with Pokemon comes from actually a bad relationship I had in life. I, with I was, a Pokemon? No, with a, with a person. Oh, okay. I was I, I was I was in in a, a romantic scenario with a young lady, and our relationship was good, and then it wasn't. And 
I, I wasn't yet mature enough to really sort of confront the bad things that were going on in a relationship. Yeah. So we just sort of spent the nights not talking to each other. And Pokemon video games, mm. specifically the one on the Nintendo 64 is like Pokemon Stadium, I think, or Coliseum. You're one asking of the, the wrong. Yeah. We would go to Blockbuster I played more video, video games than you, we, but I never got into Pokemon. We would Pokemon. rent the Pokemon game and the console because we didn't have it. And you could still do that at the time. And yeah, we just sort of spent hours and hours in playing Pokemon, and we sort of got into it and started watching the movies kind of ironically, and went to Pokemon the movie 2000, ironically, with a bunch of kids, and we got the trading cards. It kind of became this fun way to avoid talking about serious <laughs> stuff. <clears throat> Always a good now, sign. The problem is, in all of that consumption, I kind of got to know the lore a little too well. And at one point, I decided, what the hell, I'm just going to knuck- knuckle under and watch all 22 of these movies. Yeah. When we reviewed, and I uh, did. when we reviewed uh, po- uh, Detective Pokemon Detective Pikachu, yeah. like last year, uh, I had mm-hmm. Whitney walk us through every Pokemon yeah, well, movie. He, he, our, Are we about our, to talk our, about our, it? Our, our listeners got about to speak Sweet. to that. Sweet, so. it's one of my favorite things yeah. you've ever done, and uh, and pretty much extensively from from the sounds of it, Bibbs. How often you make analogies between movies and games? I thought we would it would have been you, Whitney. Out of all of the Pokemon movies you sat through, which do you like the most, and why? <laughs> <laughs> Listening to the Detective Pikachu episode went something like, Whitney, with all his alternative tastes, likes Pokemon? Whitney then tells a story about how an article he planned to rank the Pokemon movies was in, uh, movies in was canned due to his controversial ranking. Ah, there's the Whitney we know and love. Emphasis on love. Never change Whitney, your joyful soul, YouTube bibs. Um, okay, yeah. what's my favorite Pokemon movie and what's why? The, what's your favorite Pokemon? Not, not the uh, best, necessarily. Hmm. The one that you liked the most. The one I liked the most. It's probably a tie okay. between Pokemon Heroes, which is the fifth one, and mm. Pokemon Destiny Deoxys, which I think is the eighth one. Cool. Tell us what they okay. are. I, I don't know them from the... All, right. all, well, all the okay. titles are, are yeah, mishmashed yeah. to me. Yeah, I don't know them. Okay, yeah, those things don't make anything to anybody who's, you know, wasn't eight in 1997. Um, Pokemon is a travelogue, if you look at it in a certain way. It's about a young, it's about essentially a vagrant boy who's out on the road training animals to kill each other. Uh, that's that's the premise of Pokemon. It's so dark if you think about it. Yeah, kids leave their home at age 10. They're given a creature and they say, just go. Yeah. Here, here's a bedroll and some canned goods. Go kill animals. <laughs> it's, it's like the movie Hannah. It's just awful. And But that's the it. Children's it, Crusade with Eric yeah, Stoltz. Yeah, pretty much. And, yeah. and so the kids are just out there in the world. They don't have a place to stay. And they don't have any money. They have to sort of cook their own food and lay in sleeping bags and sort of... They're just traveling on foot from city to city, mm-hmm. gathering badges to become a Pokemon master. Do they get cash or riches at the end of this? They get prestige. That's the only thing they're working, they're working for. <laughs> That's it. That's all they want. It's however, pure. However, Pokemon it's is such a... Pursuit <clears throat> of, it's about the pursuit <clears throat> of the craft. Which is a very Japanese notion, in fact. Yes, actually, um, yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> going way off on a tangent here. Pokemon is also a really well-financed government institution because all Pokemon stuff is free. It's like, my Pokemon's injured. Well, here's a free Pokemon hospital. My Pokemon needs food. Here's free Pokemon food. I, I'm hungry, too. Here's free Pokemon food. It's, you know... <laughs> the, ki- the characters constantly talk about being hungry. The Pokemon are well-fed. Yeah. The Pokemon are okay. The government looks after their Pokemon. Yeah. Well... But yeah. uh, given that it's a travelogue, I like the 
the movies and the episodes that take place in an interesting place. Like they've traveled to this very Venice, Italy type city, which is Pokemon Hiddo right. heroes uh, in Destiny Geoxys. They essentially travel to Quebec, but like super futuristic Quebec and it's all solar powered and wind powered. And it's just a sort of utopian scenario where a Pokemon fall, flies, falls from space and etc. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get into that. Everyone's just, there's a new kind of Pokemon. And it upsets the balance of nature. And it upsets the balance of nature. We have, a, we have a, a t-shirt available. We don't talk about our tea public a lot, but uh, we have a t-shirt on tea public that says, uh, blank captures Pokemon, hence upsetting the balance of nature, and we all learn an important lesson about how fighting is wrong. It's just, just those those words on a t-shirt. Because that's the theme of every damn Pokemon movie. <laughs> anyway, uh, this letter may be getting kind of long, and I have so many other topics from my backlog viewing, uh, listening, uh, I wanted to touch on, so I'll wrap it here and save those for another time. Uh, you two are seriously some of the warmest and most entertaining people I've found through podcasts. Oh, goodness sake. That means um, a lot to us. Thank you. I've learned so much, not just from you, but from uh, other fan corrections, which you accept humbly. Uh, it's a joy to listen to your various shows. To end the letter, I'll end a question for the both of you that's bugged me for the longest time. Okay. Why does any show with a romantic element, have to end at the couple finally getting together. I understand the appeal of the will they, won't they, but mm-hmm. if you're invested that long into seeing if they will or they won't, don't you want to see how it works out? I picked up I picked on the, up on this early on as a kid, and it would annoy me even back then. I'd rather see the couples in those shows have cute, wholesome moments and work together to make the relationship work through obstacles because we all know 90% of the time they will get together. This is something I really loved about Parks and Recreation. Hmm. Uh, haven't seen that show. I don't watch that. I hear it's good. Uh, thanks for reading this letter and for uh, excuse me and for your time you spend making all of your podcasts. I understand it's not easy at all uh, with all you have on your plates. Sincerely, Ro. Uh, thank you very much. Um, that's a good question, and uh, he's of course excuse specifically me. talking uh, about uh, TV shows, mm-hmm. not movies. Although movies tend to end with the romantic uh, people coming together as well. Um, there's a lot actually that goes into that for why TV shows end with people finally getting together. Um, mm. For one thing, it's uh, shitty storytelling. I'm going to say it right now. Well, There's this sense yeah, that... You, you say shitty, I say ancient. Well, uh, this is... Yes and well, no. Which, which, and it can be both. It's fine. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, traditionally comedies, mm-hmm. going all the way back to Commedia dell'arte and all the way through Shakespeare, comedies, as they were defined, mm-hmm. would end with a marriage. Yes, uh, agreed. It's sort of like this, this codifying of the relationship that people were working on. And it's, it's satisfying, isn't it? You look at you look at the end of something like a Midsummer Night's Dream. How many weddings are there at the end of that? There's at least four. Yeah, there may be more. I mean, know, some people are drugged, so they're not actually marrying no, they're, someone they're, they want to marry. They're all sober at that point. But nah, uh, that's not true. But the fa- the fairies get back together. <laughs> yeah. uh, the two breeding couples get back together, and Hippolyta yeah. and Theseus get back together. Yeah, so, but there's yeah. at least one person who's <clears throat> only getting married to someone because they were drugged. There's uh, one or, guy. Or, or, there's one guy. There's one guy who just mm. he didn't actually want to end up with Hippolyta. It was no, Hippolyta who was... Theseus and Hippolyta were... Like, okay, they, then they the were other guy. at the beginning, but... The other guy. Together. It was Lysander. Lysander. Lysander one, of them, one of them wasn't into the other one, and he's drugged, and that's the happy ending, is that one person is marrying someone they didn't actually want to marry. Fair. Boom. There's anyway. just the, the point is, yes. that's a comedy, and you know it's a comedy because every, it ends with a marriage. If it ended in a slaughterhouse, it'd be a tragedy. <laughs> If all the characters uh, got together and they just murdered each other. That's true. And you'll notice that in a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of the tragedies are very funny in mm. the middle. And a lot of the comedies have a lot of real drama in the middle. And yeah, it is basically the the title of a Shakespeare play, All's Well That Ends Well. Mm. You know, if it all's well that ends well, it's a comedy. Uh-huh. If all's not well that ends well, it's not a comedy. <laughs> 
I agree with that. <laughs> but I'm talking about serialized television, which I think is a different beast. I agree mm. that there's a tradition of this. But when you are talking about doing like 20 episodes a season or more uh-huh. or, or less, but like when you're doing a number, a, a ton of episodes mm. and you have two characters who have been in a will they or won't they that entire time, uh-huh. for me, it's extremely rare that that doesn't come across as contrivance. I think you can get away with it for a season or two, but after a while, you're just keeping them apart to keep them apart. Yeah. And you can tell the moment when they can't think of a good reason for these characters not to get together because what'll happen is one of them will realize that they're in love with the other one but the other one usually through a misunderstanding will suddenly start dating someone else <laughs> and now that's another yeah. fucking season we have to sit through they have to contrive a reason for them to be apart yeah they feel yeah and, then it, then mm. it becomes contrived then it becomes frustrating and what happens is it becomes a th- the worst case. The worst version of this I ever saw was actually in the newsroom, which I know a lot of people really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a bit in the newsroom where Emily Mortimer's character talks to um, oh, who's the guy? It's the, the it's the dude in the newsroom. It's Allison Pill and this other guy, <laughs> okay. this this off brand John Krasinski. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, no, he's actually a good actor. Mm-hmm. I just forget his name, but he looks like John Krasinski to me. Um, Emily Mortimer is, and this other guy is like her assistant or her protege. And she literally just comes up to him in the first episode and says, Hey, you see Allison Pill over there? Forget her character's name. Mm. Hey, you see Allison Pill over there? You guys should be in love. That's <laughs> it. That's yeah, all yeah. the setup. And then it's just the same tacky will there, won't they, the whole mm. time. So it gives them something built in so that mm. when the show ends, you have something that gives it a sense of finality. Bu- that you've been bu- yeah, it's a what button. They, they put a button on it. That's they, put a, the, they put a button on it. But, term. but it, when it's, I, I was joking when I said it was shitty. My point mm. was is that when it's done badly, mm. it's just contrivance and uh, like textbook yeah. serialized uh, well, narrative. And uh, my, my problem with that sort of romantic tension, yeah. Like I, I agree with you, uh, listener, that when that when they sort of set up this thing and they they get together at the end, it's like, why do we have to wait to the end? Why do we have to have all of this tension? Uh-huh. I understand that like romantic tension is exciting, and mm. I think a lot of a lot of the world, mm. and you can you can argue with me on this. I think a lot of the world is set up for single people. Now you and I are both married, yes, uh, happily so. You you and I are also both kind of well out of the attention of most like marketing. Most yeah. marketing is aimed toward people a little bit younger than us. Yeah, now. at least and, in their twenties, um, teens, and twenties. Yeah, people in their teens and twenties. Yeah. People who You're are forty, just forty. <laughs> <laughs> if you're 40 or 41. I'm 56. Okay. No, um, <laughs> I'm 38. I'll be, and I'll, you're... Be, I'll be 42. Okay. I'll be 42 in August. Um, yeah. So we're, we're just outside of so the popular we're, we're, range. We're actually we're well, well outside of it now, but yeah. um, I, have, uh, I, I see all the time, you know, you look at all of the ads, you look at all the TV shows. These are all things that are meant to reflect the single experience. Mm. So I think a lot of these sort of romantic tension things are geared for people who maybe aren't necessarily dating long term or who aren't married. Or if they are, is at least supposed to evoke that experience. Well, I feel like in um, that particular context, the mm. idea of finding not just a relationship, but, you know, a soulmate, if you believe in such a thing, or at the very least, your long-term partner, the person you're going to be married to or mm. living with for ideally the rest of your life. That's the plan, mm. at any rate. It's a stated purpose. It's It's the beginning of this new chapter of your life, but... When you're young, it feels like the end of youth. Mm. 
it's you don't date. Yeah. You're well, all these, there's all these there are all these things that come well, to the, the whole fairy tale I think a very thing. happy they're, ending they're, because they're young, I hated yeah. dating. They're young, they're very happy, they get married <laughs> happily ever after. That's exactly. the end of the, the fairy tale, isn't it? And that's just another tradition that's being sort of folded into all of this. Yeah. Uh, it's been said by a lot of screenwriters and people who teach screenwriting courses incorrectly so I would say that there's nothing inherently dramatic about simply being married um, I, there's I nothing inherently dramatic about simply being single either mm. you invent things to do and what you do yeah, is you typically so invent this, things around dating so invent things around marriage for fuck's sake the, the film is unbearably bourgeois but I think uh, this is 40 is yeah. actually a good example of this it's a film about trying to make a marriage work and how you aren't always the best husband or yeah. wife or in, in that movie just he's a bad husband yeah. she's oh, an okay wife the, the marriage element of that movie is actually very sharp and, and mm. observant and funny it's all the things that have to do with their ungodly wealth <laughs> that they seem completely blind to that's the part that doesn't track but the marriage bit's actually really good the problem with those kinds of stories is you're not really going to um, fully understand or relate to that unless you've been married for a while True. which means you're going to be a little bit older which means you're going to be a little bit more discerning in your tastes and you're not going to go out and spend a bunch of money on that so films like that don't tend to be gigantic hits um, eh, I think I think that we're reaching an age where a lot of people who grew up with this kind of media mm-hmm. are growing out of this stuff and are interested in this stuff and actually would mm-hmm. probably s- spend more time and money watching this stuff than before because these forms of entertainments are not being pushed aside the way they used to in previous generations. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. people are still watching a lot of TV, a lot of movies, playing video games into their 40s and 50s now. Mm-hmm. It's not something you're considered you, you need to sort of put aside and start mm-hmm. only do occasionally. So I think there's more of a market than that than people think. Perhaps, Maybe not although, as um, much as the disposable income 20s, but still. I, 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 I had a, a little bit of a, a sort of a clash with members of my own generation around the time I was 30. Because around the time I was 30, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm good with, like, with the comic book stuff and, mm-hmm. and video game stuff. I don't want that stuff anymore. I want to start doing this other stuff, which I've always thought is a, you know, as of when I was a kid, I thought of that stuff as more adult. So it's like, I'm going to sure. re- read a lot more old books and I'm going to uh, you know, try to expand my horizons and get into a lot of older music and dif- different kinds of culture and you know, languages, all these like other things. And whenever I said sort of like poo-pooed, it's like, oh, I don't want to see that kind of action movie anymore. I got a lot of blowback <laughs> from people my age. Like a lot of really aggressive blowback I saying, you, you are a snob, you are an asshole. Because people you, def- it's okay. You can behave however you like now. We're defining things consume the kid shit. It's like, but I don't want to. Well, I think that's more of an issue. First off, that's shitty friendship. But also... Yeah, yeah. I mean, not, maybe not just friendship, just people my age. Well, okay. Are, you know, well, my point... the gamut. My, my point is... Hmm. Um, first off, I don't think you need to give anything up. I think it's just a matter of finding like... I, I like this stuff, but I also want to do other stuff. Yeah. So that that's an element of it as well. Yeah, give up, give but, up what you want to give up and just keep finding new things. But I think there's a problem, and I think it's especially prevalent in our generation onward. I don't see a lot of people older than me, mm-hmm. outside of maybe some niche interests, who have this attitude. Mm-hmm. That might be my own personal experience, but that's my experience. Um, a lot of people from our age and onward, ch- children of the 80s in particular, mm-hmm. or post-Star Wars, uh, define Define themselves by the popular culture that they like. Yeah, yeah. Like, or, or, or the cult culture, perhaps, but generally speaking... More, more so than previous generations. Yeah, where, and, and this goes on not just when you're young, but your whole life. And there are people who 
did live by Batman. Mm. They live by Star Wars. They live by Star Trek. They live oh, by the- Chippendales, Rescue Rangers, whatever it is. <laughs> like, but their their passion for pop art mm. uh, is a significant part of their identity. And when your identity is threatened, mm. it is a natural human response. Maybe not always a healthy response, but a natural human response to be defensive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we've got a lot of this culture of people who, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, are like not just saying like, "Oh, you didn't like Batman v Superman." Oh, that's too bad. I really liked it. Hmm. People are just like, "No, you're bad and stuff." Like that's where I think where a lot of that comes from. Hmm. Uh, I think it's where a lot of like the people who like think that like. The Last Jedi betrayed them somehow. <laughs> That's because they're taking it really personally. That it didn't go in the direction they were thinking it would go. And now all of a sudden, this thing that I had defined myself on, that I had dedicated my life to, in which the anticipation of new chapters was a significant a part of my time, hmm. all of a sudden, isn't necessarily a thing I like. Yeah. And instead of saying, oh, it's a shame, I, I used to like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I'll find something else to like. Now it's like we have to like preserve the part we liked of it yeah. or we don't like ourselves as much anymore. And then yeah, this I, is my I, theory. I know that not everyone feels this way. but I, I, I agree with you on yeah. this. I think, yeah, peop- and that's, that's what the whole you know, geek lifestyle is, was about. And it's not geek anymore. It's just mainstream pop culture now. Yeah, it's as mainstream as it gets. Um, oh, sorry. My, Whitney. My phone is buzzing. Excuse me. Um, They're so popular. But, uh, yeah, the whole idea of tying, tying in your identity with the thing you consume. And, right. of course, companies have taken advantage of that fully. Oh. What, do you, what do you think Disney's been doing? They've for been the encouraging years? it. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's your identity. You're, you're yeah. a Disney fan. And if we do something bad, you're still a Disney fan. Dis- Disney is especially insidious because people are loyal to the company. I know, They're not even loyal creepy. to the art. It's the corporation that, that owns it. It's not Disney's, even makes it. It's, Disney makes some great art. Sometimes. Well, the the artists make the art. That's Disney just distributes it. Well, my point is Disney pays for it and sometimes yeah. puts it out. And that part is great. But you'll notice, like, when they got Star Wars, they started really building up the anticipation element of Star Wars. I remember when the original... when, when the I mean, original Phantom Menace. Come oh, on. No, no, no. I would actually argue not. I think Phantom hmm. Menace... You know, they didn't want to ruin the movie. But I also remember... Interviews coming out before The Phantom Menace was in theaters uh-huh. with George Lucas talking about the plot of the movie, mm. telling you stuff that would happen, telling you who characters were, and about interesting scenes that happened and, late in the movie. And fans would say, wow, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Like, I want to see that. As opposed to, if you tell me that Ray is the protagonist instead of Finn, as many people were led to believe when The Force Awakens came out, that's a spoiler. That doesn't spoil shit. That's obvious from about 15 minutes into the movie, for fuck's sake. George Lucas didn't care as much. He really didn't. uh, I think Twitter ruined a lot of that. I know, I know. But, like, Twitter ruined a lot of things. But (laughs) it also helped a lot of things, but it ruined a lot of things. But uh, my point is, is this, you know, a paradigm shift. Um, and that what is considered important may not always be considered important. And there may come a day with all of these serialized narratives going around that people realize that, you know, saying, and then they got together and everything was happy Mm. is kind of ludicrous when you've just been following these people for years Mm. 
And, like, you've had episodes about bullshit <laughs> sometimes. And what? You know, marriage all of a sudden isn't interesting? Get married. It's interesting. <laughs> Every day is a little adventure. Mm. So, anyway, that's a thing. Right. Uh, uh, we should, do we have time for one more? Well, sure. Let's uh, here's do one a more. From, from Thomas. Uh, and this is about film projections. So, I guess this is oh, for me. Yeah, uh, I guess dear so. Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, I'd like to ask Whitney about film projection. There you well, go. Well, that's, that's what I do when the theater's open. Uh, <laughs> Uh, number one, how do you use the real change mark to perfectly time off a change as if nothing ever happened? Uh, have you ever projected 8mm and 16mm or other uncommon formats, and how are these processes and machines different? And three, are there any strange, subjective, debated choices in projection that affect presentation? Sorry, this is so much. Uh, I'd like to hear from a pro. Uh, um, thanks for the great work you do. Cancel Too Soon is delightful. Thomas. Well, thank, thank you. you Thomas. This is a deep dive. And I love it when we get to talk about this stuff. So, um, yeah, Whitney, for those of you who may be new, and we, we get new listeners all the time. Thank you, by the way. Uh, Whitney, his day job, of course, not so much now because we're in the middle of a pandemic and everything shut that's down. actually it's, in the middle of the night. But yeah. Also, yes. And also, you're recording a podcast. But uh, you are a projectionist at the New Beverly Theater in Los Angeles, that's which is owned by Quentin right. Tarantino. And indeed, Quentin Tarantino indeed. insists on still showing... 35 millimeter, and I know sometimes you've done a few it's other formats as well. 16, yeah. um, so Whitney <clears throat> is actually one of the last g- true, quote unquote, not that mm. it makes him better than anybody, but one of the last like projectionists of the old school. Well, no, it's, it's, it's yeah, I mean, it makes me better than other people. Uh, no, uh, no uh, yeah, it's, it's true. I'm, I'm, I'm trained in a skill that only like maybe a hundred people in the world still have. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, I can project a film. To answer your question about sort of changing over from one reel to the other. Now, Quickly explain that to people who don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, the way projectors used to be uh, set up. Before, before digital. The, be- well, before the invention of platters, in fact, uh, ah. was they were upright. There would be an upright reel that would be coiled up with about a, a, you know 2,000 feet of film. Mm-hmm. And it would uh, zip through the projector, go past the lamp, and wind on another one underneath. And You've probably now, seen it in movies that look like Mickey Mouse ears above the projector. Yeah, now... D- d- Two, and they're on these little reels. We call them 2Ks because they carry 2,000 feet of cellular film. Uh, 2,000 feet of film is actually only about 20 minutes of film. Uh, and so that means every 20 minutes or so, you're going to have to set up on the second projector the next reel on, and you're going to have to start it and then hit a button which closes one dowser and opens the other one at the exact same moment so the film is not interrupted at all. It just yeah. looks like the film continues. Uh, it sounds tricky. It sounds tricky. It requires a lot of timing, and you have to be able to see the cue marks. In Fight Club, they call them cigarette burns. Nobody ever called them cigarette burns. That term was made up for the movie Fight Club. Yeah. Uh, we just call them cue marks. You have to see a little cue mark. That's the one that l- lets you know to start the, the projector, and then you see a second cue mark, and you know to like wait just a breath, and then you hit the button, and it changes over. Um, there's six seconds in between those two cue marks. If you ever see one, start counting. It's going to be exact, exactly six seconds. Mm-hmm. If, if they're at the right level, at the, yeah. the right measurements. You can also sometimes, uh, I like this, when you're watching like an old projected film, like I saw like, um, mm-hmm. I, saw, I noticed this once at a screening of Highlander. Okay. Where if you're looking for the cue marks, you'll notice all of a sudden the quality of the film starts to suck for a couple of seconds because that's the part that gets handled the, the most. The tails are handled the most. They get scraped up a lot. So yeah, the, the heads and the tails of films are going to be all scrilled no matter what, um, yeah. especially on an older print. And if you get an older print, Different projectionists like to measure those things out a little bit differently between mm. them. 
So there's going to be prints you run into that are going to have like 12 Q marks. Like there it is. No, that's there. No, no there. That's the one I'm looking for. Like it's, you have to look for like the fourth Q mark. And Damn it. we use little grease pencils sometimes to just sort of put it in there. Um, if it's really, really bad and it's like really dark or there's something just it's so bad that you have to just make sure you see the right Q mark. Mm. You just draw a big X right through the middle of the frame. <laughs> Which is sort of like like a, a, when the junkie can't find the vein in the arm, so they go through in between their toes. It's like it's really kind of like a like a last ditch sort of thing. Uh, I've also uh, projected on sixteen millimeter, sixteen because you know sixteen millimeter. It still runs through the frame at uh, twenty four frames per second, but it's a much smaller image, so you can fit a lot more uh, film on a gigantic reel. Uh, and because of the way the projector is set up at the New Beverly, we can run from just uh, an entire feature from one gigantic reel, more okay. or less, unless it's like a two, really long, two and a half to three hours. That would take two reels, and because we only have one. We'd run out, we'd turn it off, we'd thread up the next one and start it up again. So there'd be a brief, like, intermission. And we'd let the uh, audience know that sort of thing. Um, that's the way 16mm works. Um, that's uh, You have to make sure everything's framed right when you're threading up through 35mm. 16 you don't because uh, the sprocket holes is one per frame on 16mm. Oh, okay. It's a little insider baseball there. I didn't know that one, actually. Uh, and you also have to inspect every single print. You have to put on a little, uh, like a glove or hold a cloth right up to the edges of it and run it slowly through your fingers to de- detect any nicks or scratches or splices along the edge. Because through the whole film? Throughout the entire film because if, if you get anything that snags in the gate, there's that's going to break the film. That sounds really time-consuming. Uh, How long does that take? Uh, oh, well, it depends on the quality of the print. You get a brand-new polyester print... You can zip through that thing in like maybe an hour and a half. If you get something that's old and splicey and you have to peel off old bits of scotch tape and masking tape that some asshole put on there from some <laughs> old... Um, and the, the third question, are there any stranger subjective debated choices in projection that affect the presentation? Uh, nothing debated. It's not like there's big uh, debacles and people who like fall on a certain side. It's like, no, let us read this aspect ratio. Um <laughs> Well, 70 millimeter oh, you know or die. Well, some people do feel that way. I but, yeah, know, so, sure. I've actually never had the, the privilege of projecting 70 millimeter. Oh, yeah, do you I've have the capacity never... over there? Or no, no yeah, we don't uh, have a 70 projector. If, if we did, we'd use it all the time. I bet. Also, we don't have room in our booth because those are massive machines. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought about that, yeah. Uh, but there is some controversy over Kubrick. Oh, yeah. Uh, because Kubrick would shoot in certain aspect ratios and... Uh, like it, it was unclear as to like what he wanted. Sometimes he would write a note to uh, the projectionist saying, "No, it definitely needs to be in one point six six to one aspect ratio." But then later on, it's he like correct it so it's a different aspect ratio. And then when you see it on home video, it's one three three. Like, is The Shining supposed to be widescreen or is it supposed to be a box? Well, what happens is here's how they well, film. Up. Well, yeah. let's, let's let's just talk about All it. Right. Um, there's two kinds of ways to shoot widescreen. One is anamorphic, mm. uh, which is actually a lens, and it puts the image on like a square it, shape in the it, camera. It distorts a, a rectangular image down to the old one three three square, and then right. you put a lens on the projector and it stretches it back out. But like basically, once you see the widescreen image, that's the whole image. Mm. However, the other way of doing widescreen uh, is to shoot uh, back in the back in the era when we had film cameras that were being used all the time. Um, was to shoot a square image and then crop it. Yeah. Uh, and then what would happen sometimes is when these uh, these widescreen movies were shown on television, back when televisions were square, uh, was sometimes they would 
use technology to chop off the edges of the screen mm. and maybe zoom around a bit. It's called pan and scan. It sucks. Uh, sometimes, however, uh, all they would do is remove the top and bottom matting. Mm. And then you just see the entire square image. Yeah, I see the open mat. Open masking. Uh some directors, I know James Cameron did this with Titanic, and I know Stanley Kubrick did this with The Shining, uh, would film it so that if you remove those mats, the movie is still framed in a way that they like. Mm. And it is at least acceptable, if not preferable, yeah. in the case of Kubrick. Kubrick notoriously rather liked the open mat uh, version of The Shining. Um this does create problems, however, for filmmakers who aren't planning to do that, which is why a lot of the times when you'll see the open mat or pan and scan versions of movies on television, you'll suddenly see a lot more boom mics yeah, at the like top the, of the, the screen. Microphone, and that's not bad filmmaking. That's They never wanted, they never intended you to see that a, part of the frame. When you project that, there's a little uh, aperture plate that has a masking in it that you put in there that's supposed to cut that out and keep it a, a certain shape. And yeah. Yeah, when you remove remove that and you see the whole image, all of a sudden, yeah, you, it's out of frame. It's framed yeah. wrong. Yeah, you were uh, never supposed to... Sometimes, yes, mm-hmm. there is a room mic that's just in there and it's a mistake. Most of the time when you're watching an open mat thing, it's because you were never supposed to see the top of the frame. Right, right. Um, so, but yeah, some movies, but yeah, there's, there's some, some been, debate. But there's been some controversy and I've seen... Uh, Projected The Shining. I've seen it in 185, 166, and 133. Oh, wow. Uh, at, at different midnight shows, like okay. at different theaters. Like, evidently, the projectionists each felt differently about The Shining. I think I've only ever, I think I only saw it on widescreen, uh, on film, uh-huh. like in a theater once, and I think it was. Hmm. I think it was 166. Uh, 166. I think it was 166. Yeah. I could be wrong. And then, of course, there's the whole uh, European aspect ratio that uh, this. The year, or not, not the year. Uh, British widescreen was one six six. Academy came to be. Uh, Academy standard is the one three seven. The like the square, mm-hmm. like mostly square, like slightly rectangular. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is which they basically yeah. all they had to do was zoom in ever so slightly to mm-hmm. get that on your TV. So mm-hmm. you're not really so, yeah. missing yeah, a lot with that much. one. That's considered pretty harmless. Uh, right now, there's kind pretty much two standards. There's one point eight five, and then there's the like cinemascope, the the two three nine. But two three nine is that those? Yeah, two three five. Okay. Uh, if you look at Disney films, especially live-action Disney films from, like, uh, anim- oh, and animated ones as well, though, you watch them on DVD, <clears throat> and it's okay, because they actually reformatted them to be 175 to 1, Ooh. which is kind of rare as, odd, it, yeah. as projection. This is all shop talk. I apologize for this. But yeah, no, don't apologize. Some it's, people it's like it, of, and yeah. it's the end of the episode, and a lot of people yeah, have just right. moved on to the next yeah, I guess so, thing but yeah. right now. If this is the, the, we said this each, is the last one. Each each aspect ratio requires its own lens, so uh, yeah. and we don't have 175 lenses oh. at the New Beverly, because, so we don't project. We usually have to choose at that point. Do we do one six six or do we do one eight five? Right. Like, what does it look better? And we have to start looking up the history and how is it supposed to be projected? One seven five shit. Uh, <laughs> now we have to make a choice. Uh, well, okay, it's one eight five. It's really one eight five. It looks good in any of these formats, but yeah. you know, when it comes to like sort of the purity of the aspect ratio, sure, you could say one is correct and the re- the other rest are all wrong, but. That's not necessarily true. There are some cases where it's okay to play a little bit more loosely. Yeah. Very rare cases. Yeah, yeah. No, and you would know if you're a projectionist. And I I would also have to run it by my manager to see which which is okay. Well, you should. Yeah, Yeah, you need to show the film as best you can. And I appreciate 
that the new Beverly cares enough mm-hmm. to take uh, to take these things into consideration. So that's a good thing. Um, all right. Well, that's it for We've Got Mail. Thank you, everybody. This has been a very fun episode. This was I've, a fun episode. I've yeah. loved this episode. Not that yeah. I haven't loved the others, but this has been a good one. Mm-hmm. Thank you, everybody. Great questions, different facets of the industry. This has been really cool. Uh, if you want to write us in about anything you want, Mm. Uh, letters at critically acclaimed.net is the email. Mm. I'll read as many as we can, but as you can tell, sometimes we have long conversations and mm. I love it so. Um, yeah, so uh, please email us away. Uh, we try to do one of these every week. We actually did two last week just for the hell of it. Um, and uh, stick around because we got a bunch of stuff coming here at the critically acclaimed network, mm. uh, as well as a ton of stuff coming on our exclusive. Uh, Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. You can vote for future episodes of certain shows. You get a ton of exclusive content, including uh, Out of Gas, our new Firefly podcast, uh, Not on Disney Plus, our podcast dedicated to TV movies and miniseries that Disney, for some reason, has not put on their streaming service. Uh, We've got All Our Yesterdays, where we review every episode of Star Trek in production order, and we are about... To wrap up season one. So we have a big back catalog already. Yeah. Uh, we have Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We are rapidly approaching the end of the 1930s. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, just chugging along. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're about to record a commentary track as well for, uh, for our top tier listeners. So thank you, everybody who subscribes, everybody who contributes. We really couldn't do it without you right now. It's a really important time for mm-hmm. a lot of artists. Thank you for all of your support. This yeah. has been really wonderful. It's been really great. We've had a lot of a big new influx of Patreon subscribers, and mm. that's meant a lot to us. And thank you very, very much for everyone who can afford to contribute. We know not everyone can. Um, if you can't afford to contribute, uh, tell people. If anyone's looking for a podcast right now to spend the time, let them know we're out there. Leave us a review if you can, wherever you find us. That would be really, really great. Um, and uh, either way, uh, you know, again, email us, uh, find us on Twitter. Uh, the show is at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And uh, yeah, we'll see you real, real soon with tons more podcasts because that's what we do. Uh, thank you, everybody, for your time. Sincerely yours, Bibs and Whitney. <laughs> <laughs>